This morning we finish up this kind of section within the letter to the Hebrews that goes from chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 13. I want to start to kind of jump a little bit into the next section that begins in verse 14. Uh, That's kind of a transition. So this morning, consider three verses, Hebrews 4, 12 to 14, where we have God's Word described to us in some very powerful and meaningful ways. Let me read the text for us, and we'll get in into it this morning. Hebrews four twelve to 14 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So ends again the reading from God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and as we read, active, living, sharp-edged word. As we come before it, let me pray for us once again. Father in heaven, bless this time when we come before your word. As always, we ask that you would fulfill your own promise that we read earlier, that when it goes out, it does not return to you empty, but instead accomplishes what you purpose and is successful in everything for which you send it. Pour out your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and ears to see and hear what you would have for us this morning, and in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to all that it teaches us. This, Father, we ask, as always, in the precious, matchless, superior name of Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. One of the things that I'm amazed at when I study or read about or hear about ancient civilizations is one of the things that that they did from very, very early on, and we see it in old mummies, and we see it in old skeletons. And that's that they performed surgery. These ancient people, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, performed surgery on each other. We have skulls with little holes drilled in them to relieve pressure or to, to cause uh, some relief of some issue or, or, or whatever. We've got examples of surgery being done on bones and throughout the body. And, and I, I see these things, and I see pictures of, of the things that they, they did, uh, the evidence of this, this work that was done, and it makes me wonder, who in the world thought of this? Who in the world thought to take a knife and to cut into someone else, not to harm them, but to make them better? Who thought of this? That, that to me is utterly incredible. Because, you know, my natural reaction, my natural instinct is, is to recoil at the thought of being cut into. We usually cut people to injure them, to harm them, even to kill them. But it's remarkable, as we look even at ancient history, that the same knife, the same instrument that's used to to harm or even to kill, can also be used to cure. That idea is present in our text here this morning, God's Word as a sharp-edged, double-edged, sword. It cuts, it pierces, and it does so both to harm 
but also to heal. There's another way of thinking about what's going on in this passage with this double-edged, sharp sword. Think of the, the story written by C.S. Lewis, one of the Narnia stories, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You might remember in that story, one of the characters is Eustace Scrub, Lucian Edmund's cousin. And he's a boy as terrible as his name sounds. He's a hideous boy. He's a selfish boy. He's a greedy boy. And in the story, as they travel along in this ship called the Dawn Treader, he finds, he wanders off because he doesn't want to do any work, and he finds a cave that's full of a dragon's treasure. And he gathers it up to himself and puts on some of the pieces of treasure and falls asleep in the cave and wakes up as a dragon himself. Now, the dragon form is the outward expression of his inward heart. A greedy, selfish, awful, terrible person. And Eustace remains a dragon for a while. But as a dragon, he learns some valuable lessons about himself, how awful he is, begins to see himself and how awful he is, and begins to desire to change, to be a better person, to be a better boy. But he's still trapped in that dragon's body. And no one knows what to do. Who can help poor Eustace Scrub stuck in the form of a dragon? Well, of course, it's, it's Aslan, the lion. Aslan agrees to help, but it's going to be painful. But Eustace really does want to be a boy again. He's willing to go through whatever Aslan has to do. And so in the story, Aslan puts out his claws, the terrible, sharp, pointy claws of a lion, and rips at the dragon's skin. The pain is horrible. It's excruciating. And in the process, the dragon skin is cut open and removed. And Eustace, again, is a boy, a very different boy. We might even say a reborn, a regenerated boy. But what do Aslan's claws do there? They kill the dragon, but they heal the boy. Now, Aslan, of course, plays the role of Christ in the Narnia stories. His claws that are sharp, that can pierce even through dragon skin, which in mythology is what? It's always impenetrable. You can't fire an arrow at a dragon and kill him. You have to find some sort of weak spot. But Aslan's claws can pierce through the scaly armor of a dragon, penetrate into the sinful dragon nature of Eustace Scrub, rip it painfully away, but leave a transformed, healthier boy. That's a powerful image. I think that's one of the more powerful images in all the Narnia stories. The lion that rips away the sinful nature but leaves a reborn boy in its place. That relates as well to what we're talking about this morning in Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 14, especially 12 and 13. Again, this little section of verses completes a long session we've been looking at from chapter 3, verse 7. And I'm adding again, chapter 14 is kind of a, an epilogue that draws a conclusion from this section, but also introduces the next section. Now remember, this long section has an urgency to it. Psalm 95 is quoted repeatedly. Today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, 
Today's the day, now is the time, it's urgent. Don't delay, don't hesitate to respond to the voice of God and the offer that he makes in Jesus Christ to enter God's rest. Today's the day to hear the Holy Spirit speaking because he begins it in verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit offers this rest that comes through faith in Jesus, who himself is rest. Don't be stubborn. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be like Israel in the desert who had the opportunity to enter God's rest in the promised land in Canaan. Their hearts were hard. Their hearts were full of sinful, evil, unbelief. And as a result, God pronounced judgment on them, death, after wandering in the wilderness. Don't reject Jesus in sinful, evil, unbelief, or you too will receive the judgment of death, this urgent plea from the author. Today, hear who is speaking and offering eternal rest in Jesus. Repent of your sins, seek God's forgiveness, accept the work of Jesus and receive it and rest in it. And he gives the reason why, or part of the reason why, a fundamental part of the reason why in the verses before us this morning. Why? Because God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces deep within us, and it judges us completely, every single one of us, because no one is hidden from God's sight. So all of us are going to have to give an account before him. And if this is true, then our only hope is to hold on to the confession of faith that we have in Jesus, God's Son, our high priest. Do this because God's word is living and active, both for good, but also for harm. For life, but also for death. So I want to unpack these verses by looking at, looking at what's being said and, and by whom. There's an interesting repetition here. I've told you I'd point out different things along the way where the author uses incredible literary uh, devices to make his point. And here's one of them. Three times, once in each verse, the author uses either the word logos, which you've heard before, the Greek word for word, um, or in verse 14, he uses a word that's based on logos. And I think on purpose. There's a word that is spoken, and by whom it's spoken is important. First, in verse 12, God speaks and he speaks a word that is living and active, that's penetrating and exposing. The second that we find at the end of verse 13 is that we all are going to have to give an account. We're all going to have to give a word before God of ourselves and how we've lived our lives. And then thirdly, in verse 14, again using that variation on the word logos, the, old, the author urges us to hold fast to our confession. That confession is that Logos-based word. Hold on to that word of faith, if you will. So there are three words. God's word to us, to all men. Our word giving an account of ourselves. But in particular, then, finally, the believer's particular words or word of confession. But simply what I think the author is saying in this little passage is that God speaks powerfully 
and effectively. Every single person has to give an account back to God. And some accounts, some responses, will include a glorious and wonderful, life-saving confession of faith. So again, the implication of this passage is, is, is urgent. Do not rebel. Instead, confess faith in Christ Jesus. Well, let's look at God's Word. What is it about God's Word? And then this is the one I'm going to spend the most time on. The author has been pointing us to God's Word continually in this letter. He begins it by reminding us, in the past, God spoke at many times, and in many ways by the prophets. But now, in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. And that Son has spoken a message of salvation, superior to angels. And he is also the ruler of the world to come. He is our faithful high priest before the Father himself. And the Father and Son now speak actively, presently, today, the repeated word by the Holy Spirit, offering the same rest that God has been offering since our first parents were created. The message is repeated. Quit working to earn God's favor. You can't. Quit striving. Quit laboring. It's a losing effort. You cannot win God's favor. Stop. Confess. Seek forgiveness. Accept and rest on the work Jesus has done for you. Let him take your sin, all of it, and receive and rest on his perfect obedience. That's yours as a gift of God's grace received only by faith in Christ. Do it and do it now. Again, today's the day. Any other response is simply hard-hearted, evil, wicked rebellion against God. And now, as he wraps this up, the author gives us a compelling reason to listen to that word from God. First of all, that word is not dead. It's not mere air. Some of you might have read or some of you might be watching the, the series based on uh, the first book, The Game of Thrones. And there's a repeated expression that people use in that world. Words are wind. It's, it's meant derogatorily. Words are just words. Words mean nothing. They're wind that goes out and disappears. God's word is not mere wind that dissipates into thin air, is dead in God, and has no staying power. God's word instead, says the author, is living and it's active. We'd even take that second word and say it's it's energetic it's effective god's word is living and energetic effective and how can it be described that way how can a word be described as living and active well the reason is because it comes from god himself who is living and who is active the word logos is used but it's not used here to refer to jesus as the word made flesh. What we're thinking of in this section is God speaking, the message that he sends, the message spoken by God, the message that he utters. And this is a living and active message in the sense that we saw in Isaiah 55 that we read earlier. When God speaks, his word has effect. When God speaks, his word does what he wants it to do. When God speaks, His word accomplishes his purposes. When God speaks, it goes out 
and is successful. And its success in this context, especially in this context, is both to judge, to condemn, to kill, or to give forgiveness and the promised rest and eternal life. This is why the idea of the two-edged sword comes in. Commentators in the early church down through the years have taken the two edges as some sort of allegory or symbol for two different things, usually something exotic or strange. But it's really quite simple. The powerful word that God speaks, the word that comes out of his mouth, the two-edged sword that we saw even in Revelation 1, refers to the power of a sword, the power of a two-edged sword, to bring either life or death. Not unlike the surgeon's knife, to either help or to harm. And what makes God's word so powerful in either bringing life or death is that as it goes in, two-edged, cutting effectively, it goes in and exposes the very deepest inner recesses of our, of our core being. This is the idea of the sword piercing, penetrating to divide soul and spirit and joints and marrow. The author's not give us, giving us an anatomy lesson here. He's not teaching us about the nature of, of humanity and human existence. He's using these images to show how far, how deep the sword of God, the two-edged sword, penetrates into our being. It goes so deep, it even pierces into the thoughts and intentions of our hearts themselves. The secret things that no one knows but us. God's word, his two-edged sword, goes deep into those thoughts and intentions and reveals them, opens them up. God knows about us. And so in 13, the author goes on to say that Therefore, because of this, no creature is hidden from God's sight. We're naked, we're exposed to the eyes of God. There's nakedness there, and think about that, being naked, being exposed. We used to use the word in aerospace when I worked there, about, you know, if you were being honest with someone, you open your kimono, because you've got nothing to hide. You'd hear people say, it's open kimono time. <laughs> but it's not just that, that idea of, of naked exposure, it's, it's, the word he uses here is exposed to the eyes. There's a, the image that goes with this of someone who takes your head and bends it back so that your neck is exposed and the knife is there ready to cut. Either to harm or even the idea of, of, a, of a sacrifice on the altar. The animal's head bent back and the knife ready to cut. Now that's a, that's a striking image. God's word penetrates into the very core of our existence and our being to expose us, to lay our, our neck bare and open to his cut. That's how we stand before God. Our necks exposed, the, the, the knife poised. Will our blood be shed? Will our blood be spilled? Will he kill us because of our sins? Will we have to sacrifice our own blood? 
as the penalty for our own sins. Or, or, will someone else do it for us? Will someone be the sacrifice in our place? God's Word exposes us to the core, our thoughts, our intentions, the nature of our being, which is sinful, inclined to evil and to rebellion against God, naked and exposed like that, we deserve to have our throats cut. The price for our sin must be paid. Will God require that from us? Or can someone else pay it for us? What's going to happen? What can be done? Well, that leads to the idea there at the end of verse 13. We are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's our word to God. Our account, our logos to God. We have to give a word to God about ourselves here. Not much to say because I think the, the demand here is so clear, but also so compelling and so troubling. How, <clears throat> excuse me, how are you going to answer God? How will you give an account of, your, of yourself and your life before him, exposed, naked before him? How did you respond to his word? Did you receive it? Did you believe it? Did you obey it? Did you rebel against it? Did you try to argue with it? It doesn't really mean what it says. Did you try to prove it wrong? Did you try to claim it says something different from what it really does say? What is the account that you will give to God as your throat is naked, laid bare before him, exposed? Or to bring it into the author's way of thinking, today, what account will you give of yourself to God? God's word demands a response. What's your response? And here's why I wanted to bring in verse 14, because it leads us, I think, to the solution. Since then, it says, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What protects us? What word can we give God that saves our necks from his sharp, double-edged sword? Well, the author tells us how to respond. He's been telling us how to respond over and over again. Respond in faith. Do it now while there's still time. And hold fast to that confession of faith. Let us hold fast, he says, to our confession. That word, that logos, that word of faith, trusting in God and trusting in Christ. The message that he's putting across here, the author, is, is I think fairly simple and straightforward. God's word exposes us completely and it demands a response. And you can either respond in hard-hearted, sinful, evil rebellion against God and fail to enter his rest, just like Israel on the threshold of the promised land, or you can respond with a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. You can either let God spill your blood, your naked, exposed neck before him, 
or expect the blood of Jesus Christ, which was poured out as a substitute for you and for your salvation. The author is urging today, now, while you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Accept Christ as your substitute and hold fast to that. Don't let go. Hold on tight. The author doesn't engage in any elaborate, convoluted argument. He's not pointing to feats of strength. That doesn't force a response. Armies, kings, prime ministers, presidents don't force us to respond to God. The powerful tool that drives us to God is his own living, active, effective, sharp, penetrating word. If change is to come, (laughs) for all of us Eustaces trapped in our dragon bodies, either as individuals or for our families, for our friends, for our neighbors, the, the only effective tool we have is the word of God. People have got to be exposed to God's word. They've got to hear it. We talked about this before. Give them a Bible. Send them an audio of a sermon to listen to. Invite them to church. Invite them to a Bible study. Offer to sit and read the Bible with them or to them. God's word works. It's living. It's active. It's effective. I want to read you an example that I found... (laughs) very moving and very powerful, Um, an article written by uh, a man who was a cross-dresser, a transvestite, um, had this urge to dress as a woman from a very, very, very young age. And, And he gives a powerful testimony of how the Word of God changed his heart. Again, one of the more compelling things I've read recently, it was linked to uh, on the Aquila Report, if you want to go back and read the whole article. In it, the author talks about his history. He didn't understand this compulsion that he had. Um, he hid it for many years. He, he'd, he'd steal clothing and hide it in his room and close the door, draw the curtains, turn out the lights, put it on in secret. Did this for many years until eventually as an adult uh, in college, um, around different sorts of people, he felt comfortable coming out and doing it publicly and you know, reveled at first in the acceptance that he found from these people who said, just be yourself. But something still gnawed at him. And he'd been a Christian, or a nominal Christian, at least for most of his life, found that spiritual element missing and decided to finally go back to church. But without letting them know this compulsion that he had, never dressing as a woman when he went to church. And here's what he says. I was back in hiding, at least among church circles. I thought that if people found out about the cross-dressing, they'd just tell me I had to stop doing it, which would have been useless. He writes in the article about how he had tried this many, many times over the years. I hadn't been able to stop even when I'd wanted to. So once again, I, I kept my real self, and he puts quotes around that, real self hidden. It meant that no one ever tackled the transvestitism head-on. But instead, and he's talking about attending church, instead, 
Every week I learn something. Startling pieces of knowledge about God, about myself, about the world. And gradually that knowledge began to unpick the trap I was caught in. These lessons you learn to me are just incredible, incredibly powerful. I learned that our hearts are deceitful and our nature is sinful. So be yourself is terrible advice. Think about that. I learned that the world is broken and fallen and cursed. So we should be realistic about what we can and can't fix. I learned that everyone has something to hide, even the squeaky clean paragons of virtue I thought I was surrounded by. So I wasn't there under false pretenses, waiting to be expelled the minute people found out about my secret life. What he's saying is everybody has something like me. Everybody has a sin for which they are ashamed. Everybody has something to hide. I learned that God made men and women equal, but with different roles. And I realized that I was fighting against the role he'd given me. I learned that God doesn't make mistakes and that he does rightly demand obedience. So I had to face the possibility that I wasn't fighting on the right side. I learned that sin promises freedom and brings only slavery, which seemed oddly familiar. The enslavement that he felt to this urge, this compulsion to dress like a woman. Slavery, which seemed oddly familiar, and on it went. I thought my identity was rooted in how I looked or felt or dressed. But I learned that my identity was in Christ. I thought that exile was having to dress as a woman behind closed curtains. But I learned that all Christians are exiles and strangers in this life. I had thought that God didn't want me to struggle. But I learned about spiritual warfare. I learned about the point of suffering. I learned about the freedom that comes from denying ourselves and taking up our cross. I learned that being a Christian requires repentance and change. After decades of listening to lies, I was hearing the truth. And the truth really did set me free. In the end, it was almost an anticlimax. There was no heroic battle, no defining moment of triumph. No victory bonfire as I faced down my demons and burned all my bras. Hear this sentence. It was a rescue, not a conquest. That, to me, is powerful. We rescue sinners. We rescue the lost from the darkness in which they walk. God's word does that. It doesn't matter how good a debater you are. It doesn't matter how good an apologist you are. It doesn't matter how powerful your testimony is. It doesn't matter how winning your smile is. It just involves sharing God's word. It has power to rescue those lost in darkness. And that's what he writes. It was a rescue, not a conquest. The trap just dissolved as the truth got to work. I began to cross-dress less and eventually stopped entirely. A while later, I bundled my entire alternative wardrobe into a collection of black bags, and a friend from church drove it all to a thrift store for me. That was almost 10 years ago. And praise the Lord, I love this phrase, praise the Lord, I have not been on the wrong side of a bra since. (laughs) 
And I am so, so glad. Read the whole article. It's in two parts online. It is compelling. It is interesting. But here's the thing. Whatever you're struggling with, you're like the rest of us. Whatever sin you're embarrassed about, you're like the rest of us. Whatever anxieties, whatever worries, whatever fears, you're like the rest of us. God's Word exposes these things. First to us, we have to see them and recognize them. And then we have... (laughs) We have a God to whom we must give account. How will we respond when his word exposes us? What worked in this man was the the relentless, repeated word of God, exposing who he was and calling him to God in Christ. To me, it's an incredible example of how the word of God can penetrate us to our very core and does not return to God empty. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the very core of our being. None of us are hidden from the sight of God. We're naked and exposed before Him, and we must give an account. What is yours? And if you've made the confession in Christ, hold fast, don't let go. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, indeed, we are truly grateful for your word, its power, its wisdom, the love that it shows, the care and concern for us, but also the truths that it reveals, even if they're painful, even if they're painful to face, even if they're painful to acknowledge. May we be like that little boy who wants to have that dragon skin removed as painful as it might be so that we might be reborn and walk before you in faith and in trust, in obedience, loving you, loving you for what you have done for us. May your word go out. May it go out powerfully. May it go out effectively. May it expose sin and reveal darkness. And may it heal. And we pray that many and many and many would hear and respond in repentance and faith. And we would be pleased to be used by you for this great and glorious purpose. Father, we ask it as always in the name of Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.